You are listening to the 2022 Air and Space Power Conference, brought to you by the Royal Australian Air Force's Air and Space Power Centre. In this presentation, Dr. Carl Gibson contributes with their discussion on national and regional resilience. We join the presentation as it is introduced to the conference attendees. Please welcome Dr. Carl Gibson. And for the air crew, he has bought a model to keep them entertained. Thanks. Thanks. I'm not going to be taking any calls during this morning, but my watch broke this morning, so I'm relying on the timer. Um, as John alluded, there's a lack of understanding generally about resilience. And I take this from 1 Corinthians in the Bible, in the Old looking through a lens darkly. And that's been interpreted in two ways. It means that we have a dim, we have an obscured, we have a grave view about what resilience is. We have an incom incomplete understanding. And another interpretation is that there are multiple people that look through these lens, and each person that looks through this lens looks at resilience differently. And everyone in this room, if there's 500 people in this room, we've probably got 501 different versions of what resilience is. I've been working in this field for, for two decades, nationally and internationally, to try and come up with acceptable understandings and definitions of resilience. And after two decades, when we get together as an international standards organization, we still argue about what resilience means. So I'm going to try and just give some ideas, some concepts about resilience so that it allows you to think maybe a little bit differently through the rest of the conference when people are talking about resilience. So when the literally tens of thousands of publications that come out almost every year that mention resilience, they're just building this confusion about resilience. And I extracted on Sunday from LinkedIn some job adverts for resilience specialists. And resilience is about business continuity management. It's about contingency planning. Resilience is about sustainability. Resilience is about privacy and security. A resilience expert is an expert on bouncing back. Resilience is in emergency services. Resilience is about managing risks. And that confusion and its multiplicity of interpretations about what resilience is, is a result directly of the way that the terms evolved. And it originally came out of engineering, and it originally came out of ecology. And since then, government, industry, military have taken the term and have adopted it in different ways. And there's a number of terms that have come out over the years about it being to do with coping with stress, about it's our ability to adapt to that stress. That it's about responding, it's about recovering, it's about anticipating. It's a cultural thing. It's about being able to flex, to absorb. It's about reducing vulnerabilities and coping with the unseen. Now, I said that's an evolution. 
And normally evolution abandons the things that are no longer relevant and no longer work and no longer help the organism to survive. But with resilience, we've kept all those old terms and tried to incorporate them and force fit them into definitions and into job advertisements and into the way we try and think and build resilience. So I, I, I'm going to have a, a quick explanation, uh, a quick explanation, exploration of looking at some aspects of resilience. And we'll go through these fairly quickly. Now, some of the diagrams will be complex, and I don't want you to even try and read the content that's on those diagrams. They're there to illustrate how complex some of these things are before we start to simplify it and look at the core of what we need to be aware of. There are lots of different models of resilience which look at resilience through a different lens. Every one of these oval shapes, each one of these types of models has maybe five or 10 or 20 different sub-models, each of which ex explain a very different aspect of resilience. Now, as a, a famous statistician called George Box once said, all models are wrong, some are useful. And all of our models of resilience are wrong, but some can be useful to help us understand it. And this is just one very simple model to start to explain what resilience is about. Resilience is about any type of system, and I don't just mean an IT system, any type of system which is exposed to different types of stressors. And resilience is an outcome of a whole range of capabilities that that system possesses or can acquire that help it deal with those stressors and still do what the system's supposed to do. Now, the vast majority of thinking about resilience is focused in that blue box. It's about the things that the organization does to achieve its outputs. And a big area that has been ignored is its outcomes, how those outputs interact with other systems. That's a topic we'll come back to in a little while. And there's some common problems with a lot of approaches to resilience, whether they're at a, uh, an organization level, uh, industry sector level, a governmental level. And one of those key problems is that we have a very superficial understanding of uncertainty and complexity. We've been engineered, we've been trained to think of uncertainty and complexity in certain ways. Thank you. And that has hampered our ability to anticipate the future. Part of that is a hangover of about 400 years. Since the 1600s, when great thinkers like René Descartes and Sir Isaac Newton led the Enlightenment, when the West started to abandon blaming gods and demons for everything that happened in the world, towards a mechanistic clockwork universe that we could explain in terms of cause and effect. And that became known as Cartesian Newtonian thinking, 
which is what's ruled most of our thinking for the last 400 years. The problem with that is it's linear. It's about sequential cause and effect. And we live in a really complex world where those linear patterns rarely hold true. But a lot of our analytical tools are based on this Cartesian-Newtonian world, which are ill-suited for our modern world. But our training systems still promulgate this thinking. That means we've got a very poor understanding of complexity. We think in terms of linear systems. We sometimes even get to thinking about compl complicated systems. But we don't really, really deeply understand the complex systems we rely on. And because of that high uncertainty, our complex systems are highly vulnerable. But we have underpinning assumptions to a lot of our thinking that still puts us back into that linear world. Because of that, we rarely test the assumptions on which we rely. Now, when I was in the army, I was taught red teaming to test assumptions many, many years ago. And I've brought that philosophy back into the work I do with government, with industry. But it's not well accepted, and it's rarely done well. And the other key aspect of that assumption is that we're all used to making decisions every day. And most of those decisions we make every day are reversible decisions. If we make an error, if things don't work out exactly as we think they are or, or should be, then we can reverse those decisions. We can step back and put a different decision in place. The problem is a lot of the decisions we have to make in today's world are irreversible. They are difficult, if not impossible, to reverse without severe consequences. The problem is we too often approach irreversible decisions as though they were reversible. And we need different processes in place to handle those irreversible decisions. The other thing about assumptions that we rarely think about is we have a view about how things work. Now, everybody in this room today is a deviant. You are all deviants. I am a deviant. And that is, we start off with things that are designed, and we deviate from the design. Now, Diane Vaughan wrote a seminal book on the Challenger disaster, looking at how NASA operated and how it normalized these deviances. And these deviances arise because we have a design process, we have a protocol, we have a doctrine. And then, for expediency, we start to make unofficial modifications to those rules. And over time, those rules become normalized, and they become the way we do things. And they create what's called a formal landscape and an informal landscape. We think we're operating in the formal landscape. We think we're doing work as designed, we sometimes vary what we think is happening, and we imagine that this is the process or the system and how it operates. We might tell other people how it all operates slightly differently to how we, we think it operates or how it's designed. But then the people that are doing that work are doing it quite differently from how we believe 
it's happening. Now, in every major disaster that has ever happened, where we have an ability to learn lessons from that disaster, we see this normalization of deviance occurring. And John mentioned about vulnerabilities, and again, I'll be picking up on this in a, in a minute, but we pay insufficient attention to our vulnerabilities. When we do, we tend to focus on inherent vulnerabilities, the vulnerabilities that our audit teams might pick up in the work that we do. But vulnerabilities are acquired over time, and vulnerabilities emerge as a result of the stresses we put on our systems. So what does resilience look like? Again, this is the first of the complex diagrams that I want you to pay little attention to. But these are the components that contribute to resilience. Whether this is the resilience of a community group, whether this is the resilience of an organization, whether this is a national resilience. And all this diagram is saying that there is stuff that happens that we need to be, or we aim to be resilient to. There's the stuff that we do that makes us resilient. <coughs> then there's a whole lot of other stuff that we do in the background that supports what we do that makes us resilient. That's all that diagram's saying. And if we look at where across a lot of organizations collectively, how well they perform in these areas, the red boxes represent where things are done reasonably well. Where there's no box, it's an area that's largely ignored in many organizations. Now you see that there's some boxes don't completely cover, or some red boxes don't completely cover the white boxes. That represents big gaps. And you see other boxes that are shifted to the side. And that represents where there's a lot of stuff that's done that's irrelevant and doesn't contribute to resilience or actively degrades resilience. So there's a lot of work just to get organizations thinking properly about resilience. When resilience fails, uh, in, in Australia, the federal government did a brilliant job in closing down borders very early. And by March, April 2020, we were down to virtually zero cases of community transmission. And then something happened. We had a second wave that started off in one of our states in Victoria, which was due to a catastrophic failure of a hotel quarantine system where incoming travelers from overseas were put into two weeks quarantine. There was a, a, a government inquiry into that failure which lasted for most of 2020. Uh, there's about 700,000 pages of evidence for that inquiry. That's a summary of 700,000 pages of evidence. Again, it's a complicated diagram. Don't try and read it. What I wanted to show you is that failure rarely has a single cause. Failure doesn't occur as a linear sequence. Failure occurs as a complex interaction of multiple different factors. There might be a common cause early on, and the common causes for the Victorian quarantine failure in the pandemic of 2020 were decisions that were made a decade previously that reduced resilience within Victoria. I think I just skipped a slide, did I? No. 
Now, we can take all of that diagram and put it down into what's called the organic model. Now, this is a model I developed about 20 years ago as a way of looking at the pathology of failure in systems. And there's four key factors, how decision makers perceive risk and uncertainty, how they make sense of their context, how they make decisions based upon that perception through the knowledge flows, how they then enact those decisions through building capability and taking action, and how culture influences the circle and the other three boxes as a powerful amplifier or a powerful degrader of what's occurring in those boxes. Now, those, that organic model occurs at every level from subsystems to systems to metasystems. And when we have problems occurring at the socioeconomic level, they cascade downwards through the other systems or the other subsystems within society, occurring through that organic model. When resilience goes well, there's a number of factors that are common. Now, this is based on an organization. I've got nothing to do with how well they performed during the pandemic. It's a global food manufacturer. But I was present doing other work and captured a lot of information during that time. This particular organization showed fluid leadership. If you're familiar with high reliability organizations, it's what's termed deference to expertise. You delegate the decision-making authority down the, the, the hierarchy to those people best positioned to make the decisions quickly. They recognized that they didn't have any supply chains very quickly. They recognized that they had complicated, interdependent supply networks. And they recognized that not during the pandemic, but they recognized that with other problems they had with getting the raw materials they needed for their manufacturing a decade ago. So they developed special relationships with their many suppliers to keep them close to the in-house and to keep them tightly coupled with the organization. They dedicated a team to focusing on the disruption that the pandemic was causing and took them out of the business. And they left a B team to look after the day-to-day -day operations. So the A team wasn't distracted by the minuity of the day and the business operations wasn't distracted by what was happening in the pandemic. And it stopped them going down to what we call over here, going down rabbit holes, where they go deep down into irrelevant issues that distract them. They had a senior leader that didn't make any decisions. Their role was devil's advocate to question everybody else's decisions, to test assumptions. And they accepted that they would all make mistakes but they wanted people to get out there and make decisions and to take risks and accept that those people would make mistakes, but they wouldn't be punished for those mistakes. They used those mistakes as learning opportunities. And they set systems in place to continuously monitor the situation so that several times a day, all key decision makers were updated on what was occurring within and outside of the organization. 
And they created a decision-making and action space in which to operate, and they made that decision space as big as they could to give them flexibility and to introduce reversibility into their decisions. So what does this mean with regards to national resilience? This is not meant to be comprehensive. These are some of the touch points that I see, not just within Australia, but with work that I do overseas as well in other countries. So they're a common set, but they apply to Australia as well, where our national vulnerabilities are. And I just want to pick on a, on a few of them. And the key one is policy objectives and consistency of policy objectives. There's a, a, an economic rule that some of you may be aware of called the Tinbergen rule, which is we can't use one policy instrument to solve two or more policy problems because we'll end up not solving any problem because of conflicts. And we saw that during the pandemic in Victoria in their quarantine failure because they used the policy tool of hotel quarantine uh, centers in a city center. But their other policy objectives were to reinvigorate the tourism sector to keep the hotels going and to create uh, indigenous employment through selecting uh, indigenous owned companies to run security. Unfortunately, they weren't qualified to do the job that they tried to do. So we have these policy issues. We are all familiar with, with the cultural decay that's been occurring. I won't spend any more time on that. And just to mention about innovation, innovation isn't about the latest chips, the latest technology, the latest science. Innovation is also about the way that we teach people to think. And one of the big problems we have, one of the big vulnerabilities we have in teaching people to think is that our education models have changed little for 400 years. Although we might use online delivery, we might use the latest computing technology, the actual delivery of teaching and learning is little different than you would have seen with Isaac Newton 400 years ago at Cambridge University. The teaching is almost the same. And a lot of organizations are stuck in this paradigm that they're dealing with uh, supply chains, not complex supply networks, and where we have new systems not replacing old, but getting laid on top of our legacy systems. Now, very quickly, that's, that's a scorecard. The more yellow it is, the more red it is, the more orange it is, the more vulnerable it is. And we have got centers of excellence in all of those areas of vulnerability, but they don't join up, and they're surrounded by areas of poor vulnerability. Now, I, I, I've got about two minutes left. And in those last two minutes, what I wanted to talk about was this, that some of you wondered why I carried it up here. And this is a, a mathematical science toy called a Hoberman sphere. And along with a former uh, US pilot, based on his experience in flying missions in Afghanistan and Iraq, his experience with uh, flying with the US Coast Guard and, um, and with air operations with US federal firefighters, came up with a concept called the margin of maneuver. And if you think about our system, this is our system, this nice little sphere here. 
And there's constantly things pressing on the outside in our sphere, pushing inwards, pushing inwards. And so we have things in our systems, capabilities, resilience capabilities that push outwards against those stressors. Now, if the things that are pushing outwards are flawed, if they're vulnerable, we push inwards again. So this is a big margin of maneuver. This is a small margin of maneuver. What we want to do is make our margin of maneuver big enough so that we can make decisions in this space. And we've got the time and the space to do that properly. We've got the time and the space to build reversibility into those decisions. If we're dealing in this area, then those decisions are irreversible. We don't learn from our errors. And we've got low resilience. And each one of the little green bits that connect it, they represent our resilience capabilities, our nodes, the things we have to build. The surprising thing when we use this tool on multi-billion multi dollar government projects, the project management office thinks their margin of maneuver is here. When we use the tools and get them thinking about it, and they adjust the circle during the workshop, during the discussion, a lot of our multi-billion dollar projects are around about here with their margin of maneuver. So we are far more vulnerable. We are far less resilient than we've always assumed. And our ability to build that resilience isn't necessarily increasing because the context, our environment, is often moving faster than our ability to build this resilience. John. Thank you, Carl. Where can I buy one of those? Please join me in thanking Carl. Thank you for being part of the Air and Space Power Centre's 2022 Air and Space Power Conference, which was proudly sponsored by principal sponsor Boeing, major sponsors L3 Harris, Rolls-Royce and Lockheed Martin. If you are looking to consume, contest or contribute to airspace power, please visit www.airpower.airforce.gov.au.